0: passage comes right on the heels of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. If you were around last week, you'll recall uh, those two stories that Jesus told. The second of the two, a story in which two men went up to the temple to pray, Jesus tells us. One trusting in himself that he was righteous, treating others with contempt, looking down on them. The other having come to the end of himself, crying out in humble contrition, God be merciful to me, a sinner. A story at the end of which Jesus declares it's the second of the two who went down to his house justified. It's as shocking as the parable of the, the good Samaritan where Jesus declared that it was neither the priest nor the Levite who was the hero of that now famous story, but rather a Samaritan man. We, we lose some of the, the shock value being so, so distant from the original audience of the, this writing the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, it's the self-righteous Pharisee whose prayers go unheard, blinded by his own self-sufficiency and pride, unable to see the sickness of his own heart, only in the hearts of everyone around him, while the sinful tax collector is justified before God in humble recognition of his desperate need for God's mercy and forgiveness. It's with that story, fresh on our minds, that Luke tells us in chapter 18, verse 15, now they, the, the, the people, the crowds, were bringing even infants to him, to Jesus, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Right? Luke tells us that, that people were bringing their children to Jesus, even infants, that he might extend his hand in blessing upon them. And, and we're told that the, the disciples respond with rebuke. They, they've done this on a number of occasions up to this point. And, and typically it comes with a course correction from Jesus on the other side of it. And, and that's no different here. As they admonish the parents of, of these little ones. Why? We're not, we're not told. Luke doesn't give us that information. Maybe they thought you know Jesus was too busy maybe too exhausted to be bothered with children. After all, children were were seen as a a burden on the family and the community until they were were old enough to pull their weight. Insignificant, an inconvenience, not unlike the view of, of many in our own day and age who see children as a burden rather than a blessing. And yet... Notice that Jesus responds in stark contrast to those holding such a view, including many of the the Jewish religious leaders of his day, declaring that, that children most clearly show us what it means to receive and enter the kingdom in their helplessness, in their humility, in their complete dependence and wholehearted trust. What does it mean to receive God's kingdom? It means childlike faith, humble dependence, and trust. In Jesus, in the words of one scholar, every child born into the world is absolutely, completely, totally, actually helpless. And so it is with every child who is born into the kingdom of God. Again, as we just sang, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, like a child looks to his or her her, parent, her parents, children representing the smallest, most powerless in society, like the persistent widow going back to, to last week, helplessly dependent, presenting us with a, a clear and, and stark contrast with the man in the story that follows. And notice that Luke just keeps doing this, right? He gives us the response of one individual or crowd of people in uh, receiving the kingdom and entering into it. And then the, the alternative uh, follows suit right behind it in Luke's gospel account over and over again, where you have people not receiving and entering the kingdom. And we're meant to see that contrast each and every time. Last week it was the persistent widow, the penitent publican, the tax collector on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the, the Pharisee. Here we get children on the one hand, and then we get this story that follows of a man with no sense of helplessness, self confident in his religious devotion self-reliant in his wealth and possessions. And as we step into these next verses, I I would remind us that that though we may be on the back end of of it, we we still, we we live with with the the remnants of a Bible Belt subculture and also we do pretty well for ourselves in in the socioeconomic sense where we live. There's a both and danger. We're about to encounter a man self-confident in his religious devotion. He would have fit right in in the Bible Belt. Self-reliant in his wealth and possessions. He would have fit right in in the Peachtree City area and the areas which surround it. Verse 18. And a ruler asked him, asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here we encounter the, that most famous of biblical characters known as the rich young ruler. A description that, that comes in bringing together the uh, the parallel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. A man whom uh, many scholars believe was perhaps a synagogue leader. Maybe a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish Supreme Court on religious matters. And we're told that the man asked Jesus. Perhaps in seeing what's just taken place with, with this crowd of people bringing their kids to to Jesus and Jesus's response he asks good teacher what must I do to inherit eternal life not unlike the lawyer back in chapter 10 a man whom you'll recall in that instance stood stood up to put Jesus to the test saying teacher what shall I do to inherit eternal life almost verbatim what we see here perhaps perhaps that's the question that some of us bring into this place this very morning the question of how to get right with God, so to speak. And, and if that's you, I, I'm incredibly excited that, that you're here. We'd love to get time with you to sit with that question and to, to wrestle with it. We're, we're going to do that even now as we uh, work our way through this passage and see how Jesus responds to this man. For others of us, right, we'd love to have someone ask us this kind of question, right? The low-hanging fruit of evangelism. No, no relational investment for years and years and years trying to get to that place where the conversation can happen. No years and years of pleading with the Lord. Just a simple question. How do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, verse 19, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. I love this response. Jesus' response to this man's question is theologically double-edged in that it presents the man not only with a question of, of who Jesus truly is, but a question of who the, the rich young ruler himself truly is. Among many others, John Calvin once argued that to know the self is to know God and to know God is to know the self. And and he said, I'm not sure which comes first, but we'll start with God because that's always right and appropriate to do so. Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. No one is good except God alone. We have no business calling Jesus good unless we're too willing to call him God. Some argue that, that Jesus himself never claimed to be God that Jesus impacted people's lives who then proceeded to, to deify him, but that ultimately Jesus saw himself as nothing more than a good moral teacher. We've talked about this a time or two along the way. For some of you, this won't be new information, but I hope it's an encouragement to be reminded of these things, that this good teacher said he was the son of God and that he is in the father, John chapter 10, verses 36 through 39, that this good teacher said he was God, Mark chapter 14, verses 61 through 64. This good teacher said he was sinless. John chapter eight, verse 46. This good teacher told us to pray to him as God. John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. This good teacher claimed to be able to forgive people's sins. Matthew chapter nine, verses six through eight. This good teacher claimed to be able to grant people eternal life. John chapter 10, verses 27, 28. This good teacher said that he's the only way to heaven. John chapter 14, verse 6. And this good teacher claimed that if you've seen him, you've seen God the Father. John chapter 14, verse 9. Which is why we're told John chapter 10, verse 33, the Jews answered him, answered Jesus, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Coming back to the C.S. Lewis quote that comes out to play, I don't know, about once a year around here, in his famous Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. And, and, And there are a lot of people who say this. Namely, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing Lewis says we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up, Lewis says, for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus says to the the rich young ruler, why do you call me good? No one is, is good except God alone. Not only presenting the man with a question regarding who he perceives Jesus to, to truly be, but two, bringing the man face to face with his own inability to earn eternal life. As the apostle Paul would go on to say in Romans chapter three, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul famously it goes on to say in that very same chapter, Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Another way of saying, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, Jesus says to the man, as he brings him before a, a partial listing of the, the Decalogue, surely expecting the man to be more than familiar with all 10 of the 10 commandments, though Jesus includes only five of them here. And he said, verse 21, all these, all these commandments I've kept from my youth. And now we see that the man's original question, it's not a simple question. Because this man isn't asking from a place of self-abandonment. To be fair, he's not testing Jesus, unlike the the lawyer back in chapter 10. And yet this is a very different situation than that of the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, who asked Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? A man in that instance having come to the end of himself like the tax collector in the parable preceding this morning's passage. No, the rich young ruler that Jesus encounters here, he's coming from a place of perceived virtuousness. Perhaps sincere in his response if we give a little bit of the benefit of the doubt and yet misguided nonetheless. Going back to to last week's parable, he's trusting in himself that he is righteous. Luke tells us, verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Here Jesus goes deeper than religious externalism and and socioeconomic status. As he knows that this rich young ruler has fashioned wealth into a heart idol, a means of both identity and security. And so Jesus directs the man's attention from from his many pious acts of of religious devotion to the nature of the man's idol-enthroned heart. You see it in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the thing that drives us batty Right? Jesus, just like give me the fence to play in. Make it black and white and clear. Just tell me what to do and not to do. And Jesus says, I'm gonna go deeper than that. I'm coming after your heart at the core, at the foundation of who you are. And born out of that will be a life of devotion. In doing so, in directing the man's attention, To the nature of his idol-enthroned heart, Jesus calls the man to follow him, to receive and enter the kingdom. Mark's account of this particular story goes even further, telling us that Jesus, as he spoke these very words, looked at the man and loved him. And yet, like Lot's wife, the man's heart was elsewhere. In this case, entangled in the riches of this world. As Jesus said back in chapter 14, verse 33, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Moral of the story it's not that rich people will be poor in the next life or that poor people will be rich in the next life. Again, Abraham himself was rich in this life, as was Job, a man blameless and upright. Joseph of Arimathea, who would go on to make sure that Jesus received his own proper burial. We're not talking about a a universal command to become a pauper. There's such a thing as as righteous wealthy and unrighteous wealthy. And there's such a thing as righteous impoverished and and unrighteous impoverished. This is not about moving into the, the life of a pauper for any and everyone who would follow Jesus. But rather it is to give up anything standing in the way of following him. The man had nets, so to speak, that he wasn't willing to leave behind. Here, failing to receive the kingdom of God like a child, lacking in childlike faith, lacking in humble dependence, lacking in self-abandoning trust in Christ. Which is why Luke goes on to tell us, verse 23, But when he heard these things, he became very sad, this man did, for he was extremely rich. Here you have a man trusting in himself that he's righteous, all the while having uh, guilty of having broken the very first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Proclaiming to love God with money all the while seated on the throne of his heart. No servant can serve two masters, Jesus said back in chapter 16, verse 13. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There's a throne in in the castle of our hearts, each and every one of us, and there's only room for one on that throne. If only the man had responded like the tax collector in Jesus's most recent parable. Verse 13, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We're told that the the man is sorrowful and wanting eternal life, yet unable to bring himself to lay down his nets, so to speak. It's tragic. Clinging to his wealth and losing the kingdom. Chapter 9, verse 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Verse 24 goes on to say, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Again, that's a sobering thought for we who live in one of the richest parts of the world. It's difficult, not not because wealth in and of itself is evil but because wealth has a way of convincing a person of his or her own self-sufficiency. No need for childlike faith. No need for dependence and trust in the Lord when you have in your mind everything you need right in front of you. We won't even go to our neighbor for a cup of sugar. Why would we go to God, desperate? I'll buy my own sugar. I'll establish my own righteousness. What does Jesus say to the church in Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3, verse 17? For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You begin to see why Jesus would use this, this hyperbolic imagery of Palestine's largest land animal passing through a needle's eye. Some have argued that, that the eye of the of, of needle was uh, the name of one of Jerusalem's city gates and that camels had to stoop down uh, to enter through that, that small passageway. And yet there's no historical evidence for such an interpretation. Uh, one that, that actually comes with an inherent danger of diminishing the seriousness of what Jesus is saying here. The throne cannot seat two. You cannot serve God in money. You cannot serve God in anything else. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, Jesus says, than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So that verse 26, those who heard it said, who then can be saved? Right? In, in accordance with the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, many believed that wealth was actually a sign of God's blessing. The evidence of a life lived in accordance with God's standards. It made all the sense in the world that, that this man righteous in his keeping of the commandments would also be a man with a little bit of money in his pocket. Difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom? You mean to tell me that those blessed by God in this life might not be blessed in the the life to come? Add to that, that that none within earshot had ever seen a camel pass through the eye of a needle nor have any of us in this room. And you begin to understand the shock that many in the crowd would have felt. Who can be saved? Are all w- without hope and, and destined for destruction? Is there anything we can do? Particularly those of us who have a, a little unrighteous wealth, to use that, that language from earlier in Luke's gospel account. To which Jesus responds, not with the hope of any human possibility, but rather man's only hope of divine intervention, Verse 27, but he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. In the words of the apostle Paul, who is sufficient for these things? And and the answer, of course, is God. God, in his sovereign power and grace, is sufficient for these things. Luke's gone to great lengths to show us this from the very beginning, right? Right? How does Luke's gospel account begin? With the angel Gabriel declaring to Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. Chapter one, verse 37. That if God could plant the seed of Christ in the womb of Mary, the miracle of the the virgin birth and incarnation, surely he can plant the seeds of faith and repentance in our hearts by his sovereign power and grace. Our inability to fully grasp it or make sense of it, doesn't diminish in the least God's power to do it. Again, Luke composed this writing that we might know, that we might be sure of God's promises, that we might be sure that with God, nothing is impossible. And that includes the great miracle of bringing self-sufficient, self-reliant sinners to the end of themselves, that we might believe on Jesus, that we might repent of our sins and trust in him. The well-known story of Zacchaeus to come soon enough. It's not a story meant to ultimately impress us with a a wee little tree-climbing man. It's a story meant to ultimately impress us with a miracle-working God of great mercy and grace and power. It is absolutely possible in a well-to-do community like ours that sits right in the middle of the Bible belt to have an auditorium full of miracles this morning. That's not beyond a stretch for our God. Peter responds, always quick to jump in there before everyone else. See, we've left our homes and, and followed you, Jesus. Right, he's just... Just watched a man cling to his riches and lose the kingdom. Peter declares that he and the other disciples, they've done the exact opposite. We don't know if if Peter's still wrestling with some things internally in terms of this this idea of trying to earn something with with Jesus or what's running through his mind. Luke doesn't tell us that. We do know that, that Peter follows this statement with a question according to Matthews account of this very same story, a question regarding what it profits a man if he loses the whole world. And Jesus said, verse 29, in answer to that question, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life the already and not yet blessings of the kingdom for those who leave behind their nets, so to speak. Those who receive the kingdom of God like a child in humble dependence and self-abandoning trust in the Lord. The greatest gain being the Lord Jesus himself. The never-ending joy of eternal life with him. Verse 30. As Paul says so famously in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, For his sake, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, including my own uh, resume of self-righteousness. I abandon it all in order that I may gain Christ. Going back to chapter 5, you'll recall Peter and his friends, they, they, they brought their boats to land and they left everything to follow Jesus. Their life's ambitions... The safety and security of living the way they always had. The right to call their lives their own. As R.C. Sproul writes, Once you hear the Holy One say to you, your sins are forgiven, come follow me, then the Spirit of God changes that rock that's in your chest that you call a heart and causes it to beat anew under the Spirit's breath. Then all you want to do is get as close as you possibly can to Jesus and to follow him the rest of your life. That's what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't mean that there's not this aspect of I believe, help my unbelief. But there's something of this posture in the life of the Christ follower. That those who know what it truly is to be forgiven and brought into this kingdom of Jesus. Luke invites us to look in the mirror. And ask ourselves if we've truly decided to follow Jesus. Having seen, like Peter and his friends, something so priceless in the face of Jesus Christ that there's nothing we aren't willing to leave behind for his sake our selfish ambitions, our comfortable surroundings, our bitter grudges, our cherished idols. As Philip Ryken says in his commentary on the book of Luke, how foolish it is for us to pretend that we are following Jesus when in fact we want to keep our lives intact the way they are. But it is not just one part of our lives that he tells us to give over to him. He demands all of us. True discipleship is always costly because it means giving up what we want for us so that we can have what Jesus wants for us. We do this, he says, in principle, as soon as we begin to follow Christ, then we do it in practice every time something threatens to stand between us and a total commitment to Christ. Again, Luke writes that the reader might have certainty regarding the Son of Man who came to seek and save the lost, a certainty of faith that that the reader must profess for himself or herself. It's personal. But more than that, Luke writes that we might follow Jesus as our Lord and God as an outworking of the sure knowledge of who He is. It's what it means to be a disciple. So that I would ask I would ask of you the same question I'd ask of myself this morning: What nets, so to speak, are you still dragging around with you? What, what sin is it that so closely entangles and clings? Is there anything you're unwilling to renounce for the sake of Christ that the Lord in his kindness would bring before you and leading you to repentance?